1: with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 24th, 2022. Earlier this month, the outgoing UN Human Rights Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, published a 46-page report alleging that Beijing's crackdown on Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities, quote, may constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity. The report details credible reports of torture, forced sterilization, and internment of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. For today's archive episode, in light of the recent report, I picked an episode from July 2020. In the episode, Benjamin Wittes spoke with Jessica Botke, Darren Beiler, and Maya Wang to discuss the Uyghur human rights crisis in Xinjiang in 2020.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 15th, 2020. We talk a lot about Chinese policy in Hong Kong. But there's another human rights crisis going on in China in the province of Xinjiang. It concerns the Turkic minority known as the Uyghurs, whom the Chinese government has been rounding up and putting in re-education camps. It is an ugly, ugly story, one that the Chinese government has gone to great lengths to keep from international attention with some degree of success. We got a remarkable panel of people to walk us through the situation in Jinshan. Jessica Baki is a senior editor at China File in New York City and was previously a foreign affairs research analyst in the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, focused on modern Chinese society, including religious and ethnic minorities. Darren Byler is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Washington, and his research focuses on Uyghur dispossession. And Maya Wang is a senior China researcher for Human Rights Watch who has written extensively on the use of biometrics, artificial intelligence, and big data in mass surveillance in China. Her most recent study is on algorithmic repression in Xinjiang policing apps. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 15th, a deep dive on China and the Uyghurs. Maya, I want to start with you. One of the things about the whole Uyghur Xinjiang issue that has puzzled me for a long time is why it gets as little attention as it does If you said in the abstract that uh, one of the two or three leading powers in the world was rounding up large numbers of an ethnic minority and putting them in concentration camps, would that attract the world's ire and anger and fixation? You would think most people would say yes, and that yet that is exactly what's happened over a Protracted period of time, and there is surprisingly little reaction to it uh, internationally. And I guess I want to start with the question why aren't we talking about this all the time?
2: Well, it's a question that I ask myself all the time. Um, I think there are a number of factors. I mean, first of all, Xinjiang is a fairly isolated part of the world, not many people have visited there. Not many people even knew about the existence of Turkish Muslims in China before um, this crisis broke out. Um, So I think the isolation really is important here. Um, But the other thing is that I think it reflects um, the Chinese government's power globally. Um, first of all, it, it, it controls, um, the media in many parts of the world, actually, and has a lot of bearing on, uh, think tanks and influencers in places like Indonesia, Turkey, um, all these Muslim countries, which otherwise would probably have spoken out a lot more had the situation happened anywhere else in the world, particularly in the West. And that brings to the third point, which is that I think people in, um, Muslim majority countries are still have this mindset of the world in which there is the Western imperialist, colonialist powers, which, you know, is, is a fair take, uh, given the recent history. And then versus the rest of the world, which is oppressed and colonized and and all of that. And in this framework, the Chinese government is kind of like the little guys that is rising up and is bumping against um, the imperialist power of the West. And so the rest of the world look at the U.S.-China competition and say, well, you know, the US is also really bad with African Americans, with its hostility towards Muslims. So we're not going to take sides, or that China has been misunderstood or mis- misrepresented. The latter view is also bolstered by the fact that, you know, like just I said, the Chinese government uh, has spent enormous effort in shaping narratives in much of that developing world. Um, so I think for all of those reasons, the situation in Xinjiang has not gotten its fair share of attention.
0: Jessica, you were a policy analyst for the State Department on this file for uh, a number of years. Why is the U.S. response to it so muted? Or, Or is the U.S. exercising whatever leverage it has, and that leverage is just very little?
1: That's a really good question. So I have to be a bit careful about how I answer this. Uh, I worked in the Intel part of the State Department, so I can't talk about policy while I was there. But uh, I can certainly I'm talk about, about policy. policy now. Yeah, I can certainly talk about policy now. Um, and so, you know, I think part of the problem with the U.S. response from my point of view since since early 2017 um, has been part of the problem with the U.S. policy response to basically anything and everything, which is that there are mixed signals, there's no coherent plan, uh, people aren't really sure what they want in the administration, or if they want things, they want a bunch of different things at once. And I think all of us have heard the rumors that, you know, while there were people in, say, the State Department or elsewhere in the government who were very interested in levying sanctions, specifically for what's going on in Xinjiang, that Trump himself and Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, were in in no way interested in that because they wanted to have this leverage over the trade war. That actually has changed recently. If just a few days ago, the, the the U.S. government announced that they would be sanctioning four members of the Chinese government, including a sitting member of the Politburo, which is quite a strong signal dissent. Um, and that is under the ambit of global Magnitsky sanctions, which were designed specifically for the situation to sanction people um, who are involved in human rights abuses. So it, it's it's a it's a lot. It's very late to have done that. Um, but it did happen, and we are the only country that has taken such a big step. So I think the, the US response has been slow and has been muted, but but so has the rest of the world, unfortunately. And tell
0: us about the likely impact of that, in your view. Do you, is it mostly a symbolic gesture? Is it uh, Should we see it as a harbinger of things to come? Is it likely to have resonance elsewhere in the world?
1: Um, I think it does have some real world impact on some of these people, right? It's going to be harder for them to say, send their kids to college in the US, which is what a lot of um, people in the Chinese elite, a lot of them would like to do that. Um, But, but really it's, it's true measure I think is in that, in the symbolism, uh, the US is saying that this is really important and we're willing to go to the mat for it basically. Darren, talk to us
0: about the history of this. Um, for most Americans who've heard of Uyghurs at all, I, and I count myself among these, the first time we ever heard of Uyghurs is when 15 or so of them showed up at Guantanamo Bay in the period immediately after 9-11, and the Defense Department had to figure out what to do with them. Uh, and I I remember learning about Uyghurs and their oppression at the hands of the Chinese state. At that time, you know, I, and I think for a lot of people, that was kind of the first encounter with this. I, I, again, I don't quite know what to call it: an anti-colonial struggle, a, a you know, a, an ethnic minority in a in a gigantically populated country. What is the history of this struggle between the central Chinese state and the Zinshang, uh Uyghur population? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, there's lots of places we can start telling that story. Um, I guess I can start really briefly by talking about some of the deeper history. The Uyghurs are an indigenous group to this space in Northwest China. They've been there Since at least the ninth century, they're Turkic, they speak a a Turkic language, they're also Muslim. And over the last millennium, they've had contact with the rest of China, but that contact has been variegated. It's changed over time, and it's also been only partial. So there's been a Chinese presence in the region, um, in terms of a military presence, all the way back in the Han Dynasty, and then again in the Tang. But it really isn't until the 19th century that we see large numbers of, of Han people moving to the region as part of the Qing dynasty. Um, that's when Xinjiang was named Xinjiang, which means the new frontier. Um, but even even then, it still wasn't a significant presence in, in, in many parts of the region. And so Uyghurs were still the majority uh, population in many places that really began to change in the 1990s when large numbers of people began to move into the southern part of the region, which is the historical Uyghur homeland, really looking to get access to natural resources like oil and natural gas. And so, the the real source of tension happening now is is that infrastructure building and the the new population that that entered the Uyghur land. Then, that's why in 2001, the moment you noted, really emerged as as uh, a time when the Uyghur population, who had been protesting for the last ten years or so over their land dispossession, kind of emerged on a global in the global landscape because of the way that terrorism suddenly entered the discussion. Prior to 2001, Uyghurs were never referred to as terrorists; they were sometimes re- referred to as separatists. And once the terrorism rhetoric entered the discourse, a whole new range of, of, of ways of dealing with the Uyghur population began to emerge. And that's why over time we saw this police state be built. We saw the othering of the Uyghur population, a kind of dehumanization of them begin to emerge. Um, and eventually it led to the, the camp system that we see today.
0: And how many Uyghurs are there in Jinshang? And now what percentage of the population of the, of the province are they?
3: So there's around 12 million Uyghurs in the region. Uh, and the total population is around 24 million. There's also significant Kazakh populations and, and Hui populations, around one and a half million Kazakhs and a million Hui. Uh, so the total
0: population of Muslims in the region is around 15 million. And so, and so the effort to, you know, dilute the population with Han Chinese has been quite successful.
3: That's true. Yeah. Since the 19 since 1949 there's been a large population of Han people that have moved to the region. Initially they were in the north, really on the border with Kazakhstan, there to kind of secure the borderland against the perceived threat of the Soviet Union, but since the 90s, like I mentioned, significant numbers have moved into the Uyghur homeland itself, the space that was, you know, 99% Uyghur, and that's really where the the, the tension
0: has built. So, Maya, you have investigated this for Human Rights Watch. Broadly speaking, how bad is the human rights situation in Xinjiang? I mean, I know that's a broad and <laughs> broad way to put it, and it's but there's a lot of components of it. And so walk us through when, when Darren says the concentration camp system that has mm-hmm. developed, sketch it out. What's he referring to?
2: Yeah. I mean, as Saren has put it, um, it's not like um, suddenly the the Uyghurs or the Turkic Muslims there uh, found themselves in highly repressive situation and that they were completely, you know, that, that has been an ongoing um, increase in repression um, in that region. But um, the level of repression that we have seen since 2017 um, during this, what the authorities call to be a strike hard campaign on, um, I, I, if I recall correctly, it's a, it has a longer name, on, on terrorism, um, is that um, the level of repression is quite unprecedented. Um, like you said, I think if you set it in anywhere in else in the world, it would have generated a um, bigger amount of outrage. Of course, as human rights watch, we're not in the business of comparing just how bad repression is in different parts of the world you know it's it's a bit um difficult to to compare but i would say it's probably up there as one of the worst regions in the sense of repression um so there are an estimated one million um turkey muslims or or there has been uh, an estimated one million turkey muslims being held in these political education camps completely without kind of legal procedures or even trial or even like you know a piece of paper that states your crime um, the, the detention is indefinite in the sense that um, you don't get to be told that, oh, you're only here for a year. And after you've served a year, you can go. Um, you have to be there until you master the authorities say. A good level of Chinese, you have to be loyal, and um, but there's no t- um, telling that you're actually going to be released at one point. The conditions there is such that, you know, people who we interviewed told us that um, they have to uh, sing songs praising the Chinese Communist Party, wishing Xi Jinping good health. And before they say that they're not allowed to sit down and eat, Um, it's like um, the conditions there is also like a bit like the military where they get up, they have to pledge allegiance to um, the Chinese flag, national flag, Um, and um, they don't obviously get to see their families. And for a lot of the family um, outside of the detention facilities, um, they don't know what happened to the family members inside the detention facilities. Um, the the repression in Xinjiang is also not limited to political education camps, but there is also a significant number of Uyghurs and Turkish Muslims in prisons, serving incredibly long sentences—six years, ten years, fifteen years—for doing, like, essentially nothing. Maybe having sent some money to a family member in Turkey so that he could go to school, or having um a, a, an audio of a, a Quran teaching on your phone would constitute. Um, a prison sentence of over 10 years. And then there is the whole region is essentially under um, a kind of um, virtual lockdown as you would um, through the use of mass surveillance technologies, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more. So the repression of Xinjiang is a a high level of of repressiveness and uh, uh, accomplished through multiple forms of deprivation of liberties and tight monitoring of every single aspect of one's life as a Turkey Muslim in that region. Jessica,
0: one question that has always troubled me about this situation and that I've never I, I've never really understood is why the Chinese government would want to do this. China is 90 plus percent Han Chinese. It is hardly has uh, a general problem with, you know, ethnic tensions, uh, uh, other than when it does things like this. From the Chinese government's perspective, what is it trying to accomplish with this very brutal and systemic repression in 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 Xinjiang? Is it is it like what 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 is its strategic goal here?
1: It's a really Really good question. Um, at some level, there's not a good answer to it because there's just really no circumstance under which this is a good or or just thing to do. I think there's a number of different things at play here, and I'll just be really clear about one of them, which is which is racism. Um, you know, we can call it a bunch of different things, but but. That's that's one of the factors here, right? Um, you have a, an ethnic minority population that is um, a lot of times looked down upon, condescended to, bad things are said about them. So I think that's definitely part of it is is what Darren called the othering of the Uyghurs, the Kazakhs and other Turkic Muslims in the region. There's also this issue of how China has... Done its national myth making and nation building over the last uh, since the since liberation in 1949, and a lot of it has to do with this idea that China has always existed and can always exist in its 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 current state, like where its current boundaries are. So um, any any even whiff that that you know people might not want to be part of China is is this very real existential threat to the government even if there is no real hope that that these people if they wanted to could amount a real uprising and break away it doesn't matter uh, that inclination has to be stifled very quickly um, and then there's another you know, there's more practical reasons why the government would want what it would see as a more pacified or docile, population in the area and that is to be able to access resources that are there there's a lot of oil um, and other resources in the region it's strategically located it borders a lot of other countries in Central Asia you know it's it's kind of key to the the belt and road initiative that the Chinese government has been pushing in terms of um, accessing resources from other countries and exporting goods. Uh, so there's like there, there's a lot of reasons why um but I think the most fundamental ones are are not these you know sort of geopolitical strategic reasons, but they're more matters of the heart right um the Chinese Communist Party is fundamentally very, very scared of people who might believe in something other than Chinese Communist Party as their highest um, authority. So uh, that's why the Chinese Communist Party, as with all of the Communist parties, has, has serious problems with religion. So if you have a population, which is majority Muslim, th- that's problematic. And as we've talked about a bit, Chinese government jumped on the global war on terror bandwagon. I think to some extent, they bought their own propaganda about Islam being a, a dangerous religion. And so you end up with this situation where... It's a more of a self fulfilling prophecy, and and they feel like this is their only option. They really, really want to kind of what as they call it, you know, transform these people through education into something that they think looks more like themselves, um, regardless of whether these people are actually doing anything wrong at all.
0: So, Darren, you have studied. The mechanics of what the Chinese are doing, both uh, in terms of technology and in terms of you know and in terms of the structures that they're building, you know Maya points out that a lot of the people who are being rounded up are charged with no crime, they're given indeterminate confinement indeterminate lengths of confinement. So what do we know about what the criteria are? for being detained over long periods of time? What what distinguishes, if anything, the people in these camps from the people who were not in these camps?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I think to understand this, we need to back up a little bit to around 2011, which is when 3G networks were built out across the region. And for the first time, Uyghurs started to use WeChat to communicate with each other, but also to take in news uh, from the Uyghur community, but also from places around the world. And this is when we saw Uyghurs begin to study Islam in new ways, to begin to follow teachers that were based in other places in the world, in places like Turkey and Egypt, but also in the in the Uyghur region. The Uyghurs were using Uyghur language on WeChat, and that actually had the effect of sort of hacking the censorship Apparatus in China, Um, and so it became this sort of public-private space where people were talking about Islam, and that I think really troubled Chinese authorities uh, because they saw this sort of autonomous space where people could talk about Islam, could talk about politics, and there was also a a rise in violent incidents. And they began to conflate Islamic practice with those violent incidents, even though there really was very little relationship between them. Anyway, that's that's to bring us up to two thousand fourteen. Uh, which is when the People's War on Terror was declared as part of this new hard strike campaign. And over time, there was an assessment of the population. In some places, they used kind of 10 categories to assess people. In others, there was more. Uh, some of the categories were things like, what is the person's age? Are they of military age? Do they practice Islam regularly? Do they pray regularly? Do they have Islamic knowledge? Um, and, and there they were asking questions about, you know, had they learned about Islam over, over smartphone? Uh, did they have WeChat histories that show that they had been connected with some of these Islamic teachers? Or did they have messages stored on, on SD cards? Those sorts of things. Um, then there was questions about, did they teach their children about Islam in their home? Did they have family members living abroad, family members living in one of 26 Muslim majority countries that were flagged as potential problems? So really they were mapping people's uh, social behavior, religious behavior and their social network and based on that they were determining who should be sent to the camp. There was actually a rating system associated with this and as categories were applied to you, you moved from a trustworthy position to a normal position to an untrustworthy position and, and as clearly as I can tell, the people that be, were determined to be untrustworthy were the ones that were taken to the camp and that you know that turned out to be a very large number of people, maybe larger than the authorities anticipated,
0: yeah, and so let's talk about those numbers. I have heard estimates from anywhere from a million to three million people. I'm not sure which, if not all of you is is the appropriate person to direct this, so I'll just throw this open. What do we know about the numbers and how confident of them are? are we I can speak to that if 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 you like.
3: <laughs> I peer reviewed some of Adrian's uh, Adrian Zenz's articles, um, and we're, and he's really the one who's really come up with most of these estimates. And I haven't found any any reason to to doubt his assessment. What he's said is that these are these are you know, not in fact hard numbers; they are estimates, um, and it's a range uh, of people that that could be there. And he's using a whole range of different sources. So he's using on-the-ground interviews um, in different places. He's using satellite imagery that show the, the camps being built over space. Um, he's looking at government bid contracts that, that can kind of give us a sense of the capacity of these spaces. He's also, you know, based some of this on interviews with people that came out of the camps, um, which we now have several hundred of pe- people that, that have been interviewed that have been in those positions and can speak to, you know, conditions inside in terms of crowding and, and things like that. So based on, on, on his, his assessment and, and what I've done myself, it seems pretty clear to me that, that you know 10% of the population of the Turkic Muslims, which is like a million and a half people, is probably about as close to accurate as we can find. That's still just an estimate. Um, and the Chinese government says that they can't tell us how many people are, are in the camps because the numbers are always changing. Um, they haven't denied that those are, are accurate numbers.
1: Everything everything Darren said is correct. Of course, um, I would say it's it's even more complicated as time goes on to try to make these estimates because there's reporting um, from I think the Wall Street Journal and other places indicating that they're closing some of these you know quote unquote re-education facilities uh, and people are being pushed into normal prisons from them or um, you know we know as Maya discussed about forced labor so the initial estimates were about specifically these camps, but, you know, a lot of people are being pushed into different forms of detention, surveillance, incarceration. So that complicates these numbers even further. And it's really, really hard to get a good estimate. Um, but I, I agree with Darren that probably the, the 10% number is pretty good for, you know, the number of people that were initially put into these camps.
0: Maya, you described before a system of technical surveillance uh, that affects everybody outside of these uh, detention, whether in prisons or in camps or in forced labor situations. Talk about that. what's the What's the general system of tracking looking like?
2: So in Xinjiang, um the authorities have um, collected. The biometrics of people there, um, uh, their voices, um, obviously their faces, even their DNA. And that collection is not voluntary, nor is it informed. Um, so it started with um, when people apply for passports, the authorities require them to hand over these biometrics, and then it became kind of a requirement for people aged between 12 and 65. We know this because we have an official document that states that policy, and some of that collection is uh, it takes place where um, during this free physical program, the authorities call it physicals for, all, but. Um, In fact, the policy is that um, they're taking their blood samples, their DNA, covertly under this physical program and hand that information to the police. And the police puts that information into um, uh, the national DNA database. In other words, the authorities are collecting all of these biometrics and inputting them in various databases um, of completely ordinary people, including children, without the consent or, or, or willingness. And um, we don't really know how this information is, all these databases are actually connected or used, but um, they are also to some extent integrated um, across the region. Um, so Human Rights Watch, I think in last uh, last year, published a report on one of these systems called the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, IJOP, uh, which is kind of the platform that, that puts together some of these information Um, including the facial recognition systems across that region, Um, also uh, information collected at the numerous checkpoints that dots the region, and that these kind of the networks of checkpoints and facial recognition systems act as kind of almost like a region-wide sensory systems that that keeps an eye on how Uyghurs live their lives, who they're related to, whether what they're up to in an unusual manner, and pick out those people whom the authorities consider threatening, and as Darren has um, described, who the authorities consider to be threatening are, you know, people who um, use uh, WhatsApp instead of WeChat's, um, who have used too much electricity, um, who have been carrying a phone that doesn't belong to them. In other words, behavior that is perfectly legal and often quite understandable are now considered to be suspicious activities picked out by this big data system that keeps an eye through its sensory systems in the region. We have interviewed people who, when they you know, cross a checkpoint, is taken into detention because the IJOP system picks them out as problematic. And so IJOP and the mass surveillance system in, in Xinjiang is really quite unprecedented anywhere in the world in that there is no other government in history that has been able to implement that level of control over people's lives uh, in such a vast territory. And, and that's why Xinjiang is not just about China. Xinjiang is a story about the world and what the world can become if authoritarian governments uh, have a hold of such systems and able to pull it off.
0: so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report, I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete.me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web, data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Darren, you've studied this system as well. I think for a lot of American listeners or for our European listeners too, You know, China itself is quite dystopic with respect to -to day-to-day technical surveillance of its own population. How different is the system in Xinjiang versus the system that is normal for the rest of China?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, there is some uh, linkages and overlap between them. The sharp eyes system or safe city systems that are used in other parts of China also use face recognition in some cases to look for criminal behavior. But what's different in the Xinjiang case is the density of the network, the density of the, this sort of matrix that is overlaid across the society, um, a kind of digital enclosure system there's so many different ways which with, with which they're taking data from people for for one thing they've taken biometric data from everyone in the in the region they have iris scans of everyone They have these fixed checkpoints at jurisdictional boundaries that people go through, and they have their their, material from their phone taken at that space. They also have um, their their face scanned, uh, which acts as a kind of hard reset of the system. So they have a a very firm timestamp of where that person has been at that particular time. All of this makes people's daily life searchable. Uh, so you can actually, you know, pull up someone based on, you know, their name or ID number, and you know, query where were they at such and such a time, and you'll find that location in this system. That that capability is not in operation in other parts of China also the the consequences of the system are much higher uh, other parts of china doesn't the people aren't afraid of being thrown into camps um they might you know get a, a lower social credit score in some places if if that's what's happening in the, in their locality uh but they're not going to be thrown into camp and and so that means that the the threat of the system is experienced in a much more severe or you know intense manner people are just simply terrified um that they're being watched at all time all times that they 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 censor their speech uh, in in ways that you wouldn't see in other places. It makes Beijing or Shanghai seem like a a kind of uh, you know carefree space, uh, just because the level of intensity is 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 just not you know at the same at the same level.
0: I'm interested in. The Uyghur culture itself. Uh, Jessica, you guys have mentioned several times that the Chinese, you know, perceive themselves to be responding, perhaps delusionally, sometimes with some elements of, of that their things happened in reaction to some violent incidents, but they perceive themselves to be uh, responding to terrorism. First of all. I, you know, I, I've spent a lot of quality time studying international jihadist movements, and there is not a substantial presence of Uyghurs in these movements. I mean, the 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 group that ended up in Guantanamo did not seem meaningfully connected to much else except that they happened to be in Afghanistan. So, what is in fact the relationship between Uyghur Culture and the resurgent Islam within it, um, to the extent it is resurgent, uh, and you know global jihadist movements that people, including the Chinese government, have reasonable reason to be
1: afraid of. Yeah, this is a this is a fraught question. Um, I I'm loath to say that there's a relationship between Uyghur culture and and, and terrorism. Um, I think, as Darren described, with the advent of new communications technologies, Uyghurs were able to kind of connect with the outside world and learn about Islam and engage with practices that were going on elsewhere in the world and not just locally. Um, And so you did see some sort of um, changes in how certain people were dressing or practicing their faith. But that's a far, far cry. Um, from saying that they join some sort of jihadist global movement and we should be really, you know, I want to be really careful that I'm not in any way implying that anybody practicing Islam is moving, moving towards um, jihadist terrorism. Um, I think that, you know, a, a lot of what we see in terms of China's framing of the problem really did come from the U.S.'s framing of the problem, right, um, post 9-11. And, and Darren talked about this a little bit, where Uyghurs were described as separatists or splittists, And then after 9-11, very, very quickly, China very adroitly re- rebranded them um, as terrorists. I also think it's important to talk about the sorts of violent incidents that are that are happening in the region and elsewhere in China um, that have been attributed to Uyghurs. This is a really dicey subject because we don't have a lot of information. As with all of these things, you know, we keep saying there's uncertainty, we can only make estimates. And a lot of that is because obviously China doesn't let in um, international reporters to do the sorts of work that they they should and could be doing on this. But that said, it seems really clear that, that if you're looking at violent incidents that occurred in the region and, and in China over, let's say, the last 20 years, a lot of them were not what we would classify as terrorism, right? Uh, there was some reports from, say, the New York Times where, you know, people were protesting a, a local imam having been locked up and they were walking down the street holding farm implements and uh, the police opened fire on them right like we wouldn't consider that a terrorist incident uh, on the other hand there are incidents that look like terrorism Certainly what happened in, in Kunming um, in 2013, where, is it 2013, 2014, eight individuals went into a train station in Kunming and knifed a bunch of people and killed, killed a number of people. That certainly looks like terrorism, and we would probably call it terrorism. So it's not that there have been no incidents. Um, the key here is that there's not really a lot of um, evidence linking any of those incidents to some sort of larger global movement. And it looks for all the world like these incidents are, are specific responses to the sorts of repression that we've been talking about and not driven by a larger global agenda.
2: And, and if I may just jump in a little bit to Jessica's excellent response, is that, you know, any fight against a crime, including terrorism, has to be proportionate, right? So if, if you have a number of people who are committing terrorist acts, you arrest those people and you, you know, put them in prison. You don't go around and collect the biometrics of a whole region of people um, because of this kind of perceived threat of terrorism. The vague and arbitrary and disproportionate nature of the way in which the Chinese government characterizes terrorism is also very evident in Hong Kong, where we can see uh, what people are doing there, you know, already it, it could be dealt with using existing law, and anything beyond that is repression from the authorities.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly didn't mean to imply that if there was terrorism, then any of this was justified. Um, my question was merely: when I have looked at this, you, you know, that the Chinese government systematically frames this in terms of counterterrorism and sort of jihadism, uh, and specifically frames it in the context of the war on terrorism. And, you know, I've not seen a lot of evidence that there is substantial participation of international jihadist movements, in contrast to, say, Chechnya, right, where, you know, people, the jihadist groups really did go into Chechnya, you don't really see a lot of that here. And similarly, if you when you look at the um participation in international jihadist groups, you don't see a lot of Uyghurs, at least I haven't. But I in no way meant to suggest that the 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 Chinese response would be more justified if that were if 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 that point were wrong. Darren, I'm I'm interested in as a as a sociological matter, Maya refers to Hong Kong, you know, there is a certain, like, common space between the way the Chinese are behaving in Hong Kong, the way they're behaving in Jinxang, the way they're behaving in Tibet, particularly similar to Tibet in the sense of moving in large numbers of Han Chinese over a long period of time and kind of repressing local culture uh, and local ethnic groups. To what extent do the the people, or do substantial numbers of the people in Xinjiang, think of themselves as, you know, part of a larger struggle of the periphery uh, against the centralized Chinese state? And to what extent? Is it just a highly particularized local situation?
3: Mm-hmm. Let me start by, by kind of tagging on to the, the last um, discussion we were having about terrorism and, and moving into that. Is it, one of the things that the Chinese state is talking a lot about is the presence of Uyghurs in Turkey, which were seen as sort of the drivers of the, the piety movements that, that emerged among the Uyghur population back in the homeland. Um, and also a source of threat because you know, several hundred to maybe a thousand or more Uyghurs went to Syria from Turkey um, to fight against the Assad regime and with the backing of Turkey and against the Islamic State uh, for the most part, although there was a, a small, much smaller number that, that did join the Islamic State. And China really viewed them as this sort of external threat that could come back to China so, so they really did feel as though there was this terrorist threat way out there on the periphery. There is no evidence that Uyghurs have ever tried to come back from Syria or Turkey and perpetrate violence in China, but that was that was part of the fear, and that feeds into something that's been at the center of the Tibetan. Issue and, and in Hong Kong as well, where where the threat of uh, foreign interference is is always talked about in the Chinese media landscape. That you know, it's really secretly the U. S. that's plotting uh, to separate these spaces from from China. Of course, there's not often a lot of evidence for that. Um, although historically, there there has been U. S. involvement in places like Tibet. You know, uh, way back in the 50s, 60s. In any case, that foreign threat is is something that the Chinese state talks about. Most Uyghurs in Xinjiang have no concept, very little conceptualization of of, of their relationship to you know the U.S. Um, that they are, or even to East Turkestan. Lots of Uyghurs I met really didn't even know about East Turkestan as this historic uh, republic that that the Uyghurs had established back in the nineteen thirties or forties. For for most Uyghurs. The struggle is really about survival. It's about having a better future for your family, about staying out of prison. It's about uh, your brother or your your husband or your father that's been beaten on the street by the police or has been detained and given a long prison sentence um, and feeling as though there's no source of justice because the institutions of the state are not there for you. They're there in opposition to you the law does not protect you. The court system does not protect you. Even the hospital seemed uh, as as sort of a space where where you're just going to have your money taken from you and you're not going to receive any services. So from a Uyghur perspective, um, they feel as though everyone is their enemy um, and they're just trying to sort of, Uh, Stay invisible to keep their head down um, and to maintain a sense of stability for themselves. Many many Uyghurs want their children to learn Chinese. They want their children to participate in the Chinese economy. They also want their children to speak Uyghur or at least know their language and and to practice Islam. That is their that's their faith. Um, So those are the kinds of autonomy that they're looking for. Just a kind of basic. Human level autonomy um, as a community, not necessarily you know joining with tibet Tibetans or or people in Hong Kong and fighting for independence um, in a significant way, they just want those sort, of, sort of simple forms of self determination
0: I want to talk about policy response, you know Jessica, you said at the beginning of the show that. You know, for, uh, for the president and for, uh, secretary Mnuchin and for Mike Pompeo, this was getting sublimated in trade disputes. The U.S. China relationship is so complicated and so multivariate. And so many of the variables have, you know, have such a high coefficient associated with them that it's a little bit hard to imagine how this issue would get elevated in a fashion that the United States would actually be in a position to do much about it. So I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on, first of all, what are the policy levers available to us if we wanted to be engaged on this subject? Is it a, simply a matter of slapping Magnitsky sanctions on people in, a, in greater numbers and sort of advocating that to uh, European and allied governments, as we have sort of done with uh, some Russians? Or is there, uh, is, are there kind of more imaginative, uh, not that the Magnitsky Act isn't imaginative, but it's, it's kind of the known tool that we've got. Is there more we could be doing if we were inclined to do it?
1: Um, yeah, I mean I think we've actually done I, I just was listing out all the, the steps that the US government has taken. Uh we passed the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act—I think that's what it was—ended up calling, um, which you know mandates an annual report at the State Department about what's going on in the region. It also mandates that the government begin to track harassment of uh, Uyghurs living here, which we haven't talked about yet, but is a really important component of this. China isn't just terrorizing Uyghurs in in the region; they have they're keeping tabs on Uyghurs living outside, and, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that later. We've. Put some companies on entity lists, which makes it harder for for U.S. businesses to interact with them um, because of their complicity in, in various parts of these abuses. Customs and Border Patrol uh, did some withhold release orders, which basically stops imports of goods that have been uh, suspected of being used made with forced labor. Uh, and they also issued some some. Guidelines for businesses to do due diligence here. So uh, I think there's a number of steps that, you know, we've taken that I would I I think a number of other countries can take. And you were talking about, you know, could we push other other countries to do this? I think uh, the US can and should and and has really done itself a disservice, obviously for all sorts of reasons, not being on the Human Rights Council, but but also just generally, we have not been playing the sort of coordinating role with like-minded governments internationally that we used to do on, on issues like this. And I think part of your question was getting at like, what kind of actual power do we have? It may be true that alone, the US government is not going to be able to stop all the abuses um, that are happening in the region. But Certainly, by coordinating with other governments and putting up a united front, we could certainly mount a lot more pressure than we than we can singly. Uh, I think there's an important role for uh, non-government actors in this, right? So there's a lot going on. Uh, we talked a little bit about these these business due diligence. There's a lot of problems with the supply chain in terms of, for example, cotton coming from China. Over eighty percent of cotton produced in China comes from the region and Tomatoes also. Um, I don't know the figure, but a lot of tomatoes from China are, if not all of them, are from the region. And and those sorts of things are highly suspect to be made with um, forced labor. So there's a lot of work that the um, that civil society can do to raise awareness about supply chains, you know, highlight those and and get consumers to not really want to engage with brands that are using those products. And then finally, I think, you know, a really big thing that people should be thinking about going forward is the Olympics right? China's set to host the Olympics in 2022. Who knows if any Olympics are going to be happening anytime soon. But, you know, to your question earlier, if there was another country that was hosting the Olympics that was rounding up people and putting them in camps, would we want to have to, to support the Olympics there? So I think that's a big question that um, people can be raising going forward. Darren, Maya, do
0: you have uh, further ideas of what a what a more effective policy intervention would look like?
2: I think that um, the situation in Xinjiang is a symptom of the greater, uh, I think, failure of um, governments around the world with regard to dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. And every time now a crisis pops up, whether it's Xinjiang or Hong Kong, or perhaps even Taiwan in the future, we are left grappling with, oh, what should we do? Because the leverage that the policies were non-existent or that they have failed in the past, which was essentially that we would engage with China such that they would economically open up and they would be more like the rest of the world, that would somehow come naturally. That policy has failed completely. So I think we are now um, I think we're at a time uh, around um, the world in the U.S. and in uh, EU in particular, but also in Australia or Japan, um, time to come up with an alternative that works, like Jessica said, together. So, for example, I think the U.K. has a very interesting initiative now um, banding together with um, a D10, uh, 10 democracy, democratic countries, um, coming up with an alternative 5G to um something presented by say huawei um, and these are initiatives that are broader than just a discussion of xinjiang but about um, a policy that has to do i think at the center of it a revival of democratic values of human rights that the west has also you know, abandoned <laughs> over the last uh, couple of years or has been dramatically um, uh, reduced in, in their support, particularly under Trump. Um, so I, I hope that um, from uh, developing um, technological initi- uh, 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 systems to, say, tightening export control, um, to examining university co- cooperation with um Chinese companies involved in mass surveillance to um with the Ministry of Public security in China, those are beginning to change for the better uh for towards the protection of human rights in in these parts of the world first
0: Darren
3: yeah, I guess a couple of things I might add um, one of the things I've been looking at is uh the role of American technology or, or Western technology companies. Um, and the kind of the interlinkages between them and Chinese technology firms many of the, the CEOs of the companies that are building the surveillance systems in Xinjiang uh, were trained in the West uh, they went to Microsoft research to do you know postdoc work they continued to publish with researchers in the West uh, I gave a talk at Google a year or so ago and you know one of the the main things that people were interested in at Google were it was sort of the capacities of the system, you know, kind of figure out how far ahead they were. So one of the things I think we need to see more of is a, a really robust discussion of ethics and regulation when it comes to face surveillance, when it comes to biometric surveillance in general. And we need Western companies to take the lead in pushing back against those sorts of abuses, especially when they are when biometric surveillance is used on vulnerable populations. Those things cannot happen, and we need to have Western companies take a strong stand against them and The way that we could get at that, I think, is by developing new sort of international tools of of legal legal tools that that would present regulations and you know penalties for for not following such regulations. We need regulation of technology. Everywhere in the world, um, but particularly when it comes to the way that surveillance is being used on these vulnerable populations. The other thing that I would say is really important, and maybe could come more from civil society rather than from government, is autonomous sources of funding for Uyghur, Turkic, Muslim. Advocacy organizations, human rights organizations, cultural organizations—the the Uyghur community is really under attack. They are, you know, struggling to to keep their their family members out of camps. They're trying to document what's happening to them, um, and they need allies in that fight. Um, and so, what, what they really need is 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 institution building and professionalization uh, ways of sort of helping them to survive outside of their homeland um, and and ways of documenting what's happening. There's a, a really great website that's being built in Kazakhstan by a number of grassroots activists uh, led by a scholar named Jean Boonin um, that's documented over 9,000 of the people that have been sent to the camps. And that effort is really just you know, based on a GoFundMe page. Um, we need more <laughs> um institutional support uh, for efforts like that. um, Because documenting what's happening to the Uyghurs right now um, is something that needs to be ongoing. We need to continue to shine a light on this. I think one of the things that's prevented mass death, we haven't seen mass death coming out of the camp system, is is the way that international attention has introduced this kind of moral cost um, and and has made the Chinese state really reconsider its policy. So more attention being being shown in, in those ways is important.
0: Finally, uh, Jessica, I would be remiss if I didn't return to your uh, point that the repression of Uyghurs is not limited to Xinjiang, but is also affects the emigre community. So talk a little about that. What is the extraterritorial uh, application of this coercion looking like?
1: Yeah. um, And and Darren and Maya, please jump in. Um, A lot of it has to do with threats being levied against people living in the diaspora because they still have family in China, right? So you can say if you're if you're the Chinese government, you can contact someone and, and request that they give you all sorts of information about what they're doing, say, if they live in the U.S., what they're doing here in the U.S., who they associate with, what sorts of things people say when they go and meet other Uyghurs, what are others in the community doing? And people may feel like they have to give that information or else their family member will be put in a camp. Uh, sometimes that threat is explicit. Sometimes it's implicit. Um, and a lot of it has to do with this technology, this this WeChat technology, right? If you are living in the region, you can't have anything else. That's your only way of contacting people. Um, and so everything that you say back and forth is monitored. People taking pictures of people. Um, if, if you are in the diaspora and you decide to attend a protest or do something, you know the, the Chinese government may send someone from the embassy or consulate to take your photo, Uh, So you know that you're being watched and recorded. And actually, we had this consideration at an event that we did a year or two ago at the Asia Society, where, you know, it's a concern that if you hold an event um, about what's happening in the Uyghur region, someone may come and film who's there and intimidate people.
2: There is also, I mean, you mentioned technology. Um, There has been well-established research now, I think primarily from Citizens Lab, um, that demonstrates how much hacking and surveillance there is through, um, like for example, um, Uyghur language um, apps on on phones and, and computers. So um, the Chinese state spares no uh, expense at uh, uh, terrorizing uh, people outside of China, both of the Uyghur diaspora and the Tibetan ones, and Hong Kong diaspora and, and mainland Chinese too, who dare to speak out against the party. And and those are the areas that foreign governments can and should be addressing through multi-departmental efforts.
0: We are going to leave it there. Maya Wang, Darren Beiler, Jessica Batke, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineering this episode was done by the solid and capable hands of Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. So tweet about us. Share us on WeChat. The the Chinese Communist Party won't like that, but do it anyway. Share us on WeChat. Post us to make sure we get good search results on Baidu. And of course, visit the Lawfare store to send Lawfare merch to all your friends in the People's Republic of China. And when you're done with all of that, leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast distribution service took you to us. Our music is performed by Beijing resident Sophia Yan. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. And as always, thanks for listening.
3: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all.